here we start out as Paul is addressing uh, this young pastor, uh, Titus. Uh, Titus is um, one of Paul's disciples, one of Paul's students, as we've talked about before. We'll get into some more detail uh, this evening about that. But uh, Paul has left Titus in uh, Crete uh, in order to uh, continue to minister uh, to the people there. Uh, Crete is an island uh, south uh, of uh, Greece. Uh, I say it's pretty big. It's 165 miles long, uh, about 35 miles wide, and has at this time several cities on it. So it isn't just you know one isolated community. It's it's pretty big, and um, there's a great deal to do to minister the gospel there in that place. Um, one of the things that we'll <clears throat> talk about uh, in how difficult it might be for this young pastor to be in this community, in this setting, and uh, to, to minister uh, is actually seen in uh, the first chapter at verse 12, where Paul says, uh, one of them, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So, you know, that's obviously a gross generalization, but you know, this is the community that um, he's ministering to is, is people who have, you know, a great deal of shortcoming and uh, a very much a need uh, for the Word of God to be taught to them. Interestingly enough, um, while Titus is ministering with Paul and uh, the other uh, workers that went to the Gentiles, uh, he's not mentioned directly in the book of Acts. Uh, we'll look at a number of things surrounding it, but no specific mention of him in the book of Acts. In Galatians, uh, the, part of the reason I find it so interesting is that in Galatians chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 1, it says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I would run or had run in vain, yet not even Titus. So the second mention there, uh, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So this is, you know, during Acts chapter 15, when this great controversy has grown over um, whether they're going to require the Gentiles to religiously become Jewish in order to become Christians, and they settle the issue with no, they're not going to do that. So Titus is with them on that journey, according to what Paul is saying there, but there's no mention of him in uh, the book of Acts there or otherwise. Um, we also see uh, that uh, Titus ministered very much to the church at Corinth, which you know would have been while Paul was in Ephesus, and uh, that time span would have been over Acts chapter 19 and 20. And you see several references in the second letter uh, from, uh, or to the Corinthians, rather, 2 Corinthians 8, 6, 8, 16, 
I think 8.23 is probably most notable, where Paul said, If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you, meaning the church at Corinth. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the church, uh, the glory of Christ. Again, he's mentioned in 2 Corinthians a little later in, in uh, chapter 12 at verse 18. And then lastly, uh, as far as our references go, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, we just finished uh, chapter 10 where Paul's talking about all the people who had left. And he says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and departed for Thessalonica. Cretans for Galatia, Titus, not that he's fallen away from the faith, but he has departed uh, from being with Paul uh, for Dalmatia. Uh, the relationship between Paul and Titus is very similar to the deep relationship that we see with Timothy and with Luke. Uh, in the beginning of this study, verse 4, he addresses the letter to Titus, a true son in our common faith. So Paul, you know, puts Titus uh, in a, you know some very challenging uh, settings, and um, you know, in verse four, uh, Paul is writing to Titus, and he says, "A true son in our common faith." And we talk about the fact that you know many of his circumstances that he's dealing with very challenging. Some of the commentators actually make mention to the fact that <clears throat> probably Titus was um, more aggressive in uh, his behavior and his conduct than uh, Timothy, and that may have been why Paul put Titus at uh, you know uh, Crete versus Timothy and put Timothy at Ephesus. You know, it, it seemed... Perhaps, uh, you know, from those that are reviewing it all these, you know, centuries later, that uh, they were more fit, uh, you know, for each of um, those uh, environments. So, um, uh, to, to begin, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bond servant of God. So, he describes himself as a bond servant, uh, someone who has given their life over completely to God, and thereby uh, they have no um, authority over themselves. They they don't have any freedom, and they don't have uh, you know any rights, as it were. Someone who might have been a servant in another setting, you know, had a temporary period of time. A bond servant has given their life over to the one that they serve. It's interesting when you. Uh, get to chapter 3, at verse 3, Paul describes himself by saying, for we ourselves were also once uh, foolish, uh, all disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You know, that, that was, uh, you know, his... Um, you know, actually describing himself. I, I don't often think of Paul, you know, he was so religious. Uh, he conducted himself in, in such, you know, an organized religious fashion. I don't think of him as being, 
you know, disobedient, deceived, various lusts, pleasures, malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. And yet that's how he described himself, which makes sense, right? Because he's simply religious, a man who's not filled uh, with the Holy Spirit, uh, who uh, would fall to uh, everything that is natural to uh, human flesh and human conduct. So, you know, something's going to master you, is the idea. Before it was God, it was his flesh. It was, we could almost say with a certainty, that it was the devil. I mean, here's Paul having Stephen killed and having Christians killed and making Christians blaspheme the Lord you know, at the point of a sword. So, you know, pretty wicked man, to say the least. And now he's wholly given over to God in his conduct. There's a great example in that for every one of us. We think of ourselves, you know, in our sinfulness as you know having been uh, somehow, you know, independent. We weren't a slave to anyone, and nothing was our master. And uh, you know, then you uh, study Satanism and discover, you know, Anton Lavey in the Satanic Bible wrote. You know, do what you want to. That will be the whole of our law. So to be a Satanist is to do whatever you want to do. And so, you know, every one of us has that wickedness and that potential in our heart. You're going to have to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan said. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve. So Paul's now become a bond servant, wholly given over to God. Continuing in verse 1, a bondservant of God and an apostle, you know, someone who has been sent out. Uh, you, you know, there's always that question uh, when we look at people in the ministry and you might see misconduct in their uh, behavior and even in their ministry. And the question is raised, you know, were you sent out by God, uh, you know, or did you just go out? You know, you had it in your own mind that you were supposed to do this, so you just went and did it. Uh, or was it actually, you know, anointing of the Lord on your life? Paul was chosen by Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9 made a servant of Jesus Christ and sent out. According to faith uh, of God, God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of our God, or of God, our Savior. So this mission he's been sent on is, you know, to preach the faith, uh, you know, not a faith, not faith generically, the faith. And he gets specific about that faith being of the truth, you know, meaning that there is objective truth. Uh, our culture and the culture of this day at Crete was of that <clears throat> modern philosophical mindset of, you know, what is truth or where is truth or is there even really any truth that any of us could know? Uh, you, you talk like that, and people kind of roll their eyes, like, "Oh, that's that's weird." But you know, we hear it everywhere. People within our culture saying, "Well, that's your truth." You know, they, they'll they'll say, "Well, it's it's true. That's true to me." 
You know, they'll say, I don't subscribe to your truth. It's either true or it's not. And to act like there isn't an absolute truth, to act like, you know, it's impossible to say that something could be true or something could be untrue, that's just, it's foolishness when when, when our culture and, and people act like that. It's really sad uh, to realize that, you know, this is a lot of what's being taught in our universities across the nation today is, is what we, we now have labeled as postmodernism. You know, people uh, subscribing to this idea of relativism. And, and if it's relative to them, if, if they believe it, they agree with it, then for them it's true, but it might not be true for anyone else. Uh, that That slippery slope of redefining, well, all things leads you with nothing is true. You, you know, how could you possibly know whether anything is true? And that's, you know, a common cry. It's not just our assessment. The young people uh, today, you know, Generation Z, uh, they're, they're saying that in their desperation, they're outright questioning uh, the leadership that's over them saying, how could I ever know truth? They, they have more information at their disposal than any nation previous to them. But because it's so watered down and so mixed up and so convoluted, they don't know whether it's true or not. They've got information, but they're left in a place of, of hopelessness. Paul is sent out by the creator of all things to preach the one faith that is grounded in the truth. And that needs to be in accord with godliness. You only get those definitions from the scripture. You know, godliness, the, the conduct of someone who is a worshiper of God, that has a true moral compass that lives according to the morality of the scripture. He continues in saying, you know, this is who I am, chosen and sent out, in verse 2, that statement of in hope, you know, a lot of people point at Christianity and say, you know, it's a mindless religion. Uh, they, they, you know, they just live by faith. They don't really understand or know anything. I, I love to debate with those people about creationism versus evolution versus science. You know, all of the things that we hold to, you know, that, that we know our God created science. We know that our God created truth. We can learn. We can know these things. When we say hope, when we say faith, what we mean is there's a recorded history of events that have taken place from the beginning of creation until today. And we have seen how God has interacted with his creation. You know, even coming in the flesh as Jesus Christ. And so all those promises that we have that are still out in front of us, when we say hope, it isn't a matter of, gosh, I hope that happens. Or wouldn't that be nice if somehow that all came? It's a matter of, I can trust that those things will happen. That's my hope based upon what I know has happened in the past. It's very much the opposite of what the world implies. The world implies you haven't seen anything, you don't know anything, you can't see God, so therefore you don't even know if he exists and you're just out there blindly believing that these things are true. That's the farthest thing from the truth. What, what we, When we say hope, 
Uh, we're talking about facts. We're not talking about you know something that's not tangible. So he's preaching, uh, you know, the faith, the truth in godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. You know, the foundational source of all of these things is God Himself. This this isn't you know a group of people that have all agreed together to tell, tell the same lie. This is God who has presented these things and has made them known to humanity. He talks about that in verse 3. You know, In due time he's made manifest. Jesus Christ was promised and promised and promised and promised as the Messiah. And in due time he was revealed. And it's interesting. Some of the scholars have actually made the point <coughs> that God may have actually been waiting until the time where the Greek language was complete. He, he might have had that set out long before, that the Greek language was permeating the globe to a degree that Jesus Christ coming and his ministry being recorded could then be distributed to the world and read and heard and understand to a degree it had never been understood before. You know, because even in the culture's where they didn't read or understand Greek. There were men and women within those cultures who did, who, who went through the trouble to translate it into their languages. So, so the universal approach of delivering that in due time was manifested, uh, uh, manifested his word through preaching, which is committed to me according to the commandment of our God and Savior. In uh, four, we've already talked about this address to Titus, a true son, uh, the real term would be genuine son, no falsehood, you know, an absolute relationship is what's being spoken of there. And our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever Paul addresses believers, he, he does the standard grace and peace uh, as the open greeting. And... You know, from that we get the idea that you're not going to know peace without the grace of God. Uh, here, as with his letters to Timothy, he includes mercy, grace, mercy, and peace. Um, I think that has something to do with the fact that um, it's only by God's mercy that any of us would ever be able to be ministers. Uh, we, we sometimes, and well, in this passage, we're probably going to get to the point where we talk about the qualifications of a minister, Im implying that we could be qualified. In the end, it's only God's mercy that allows any of us to be qualified because uh, we are human beings and we are frail and we do falter and fail and even sin. So without God's mercy, no one is qualified. And by his grace, we know his mercy, and thereby we know his peace. To a world that is dying for and striving for and looking for peace uh, through anything that they can get their hands on. Uh, we have the promise from the scripture that if we will discover God's grace, then we can experience peace. Not just peace with God, but peace in our own lives. The, the world very much needs that. The 
the fact that Americans have still spent $69 billion on behavioral modification drugs uh, in one year. Uh, that's, you know, equivalent to many other areas of social service entire budget. And, and here we are consuming drugs for anti-depression, anti-anxiety, anti-psychotic, all things that imply by their nature that we need and we want and we're striving for peace. If we could know our creator, then peace would be known uh, by us. This common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I command you. Now, uh, the term elder is going to be used here. In a few verses, he's going to use the term bishop. Both of them are what we today would say as pastor. And uh, we really need to be clear that throughout the scripture, when Paul teaches about establishing a pastor, uh, the, the term elder is interchangeable with that, but Every time Paul is establishing a church, he establishes a singular pastor over that church and then elders who serve with him. <clears throat> There's a lot of confusion in the church today, <coughs> and people <coughs> have developed a mindset that you know elders and pastors are equal, and everybody's opinion and everybody's voice uh, should have the same weight. And no pastor should be the head of a church, that it should be a body of elders. And, you know, there's a lot of different mindsets in regard to this. And what that always creates is massive division. Because uh, God designed his uh, government to have a singular leader. Um, you know, the, the one place we see in the scripture where God designs uh, church leadership is by taking Moses and making him the leader over the nation of Israel. He then appoints basically an assistant pastor, Aaron, and then they then appoint elders who serve under them and with them. But everybody answers to Moses in the process. You take that model, and the next time we see anything like that reflected is in Jesus' ministry, as he is the head of a small group, and then there are a few who serve with him, 12. And then there's actually, what, 70, right, that he sends out to do ministry. And then there's a larger group of 120 that serve the multitudes of people who follow after them. So, you know, that is the biblical model that we have. And here, when we read this word, you know, elder, we, you know, we shouldn't think that Paul is telling uh, Titus to go around and just get collections of elders and leave them in charge of the church. He, there's, like I said, a few cities on Crete, and if uh, Titus is going to appoint pastors in each one of those cities, then that's the idea here. That's why there's the plural elders in this setting. It isn't a matter of church leadership is made up of a group of elders. It's a matter of uh, appoint an elder over there and then move on to the next community and appoint an elder, a pastor over there, and then move on to the next community and appoint 
a pastor over there. And then from there, those men will establish you know, elders and deacons who serve within them. So we don't ever see the scripture promoting the idea of having a large body of people uh, who you know, serve as you know, all basically the same level of pastor. Singularity of vision and leadership. <clears throat> Paul did not leave Titus in Crete <clears throat> to be the pastor of Crete. He left uh, uh, Titus in Crete with the idea of you need to establish pastors. You, you be a church planter. You know, study with people, learn with people. Discover who amongst them is mature enough, who's going to actually have the skills to accomplish what we're about to describe here. Now, within the scripture, the sort of litmus test for this comes from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4. Speaking of the position of being a pastor, the author of Hebrews says, No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. Notice there in Hebrews, speaking of a pastor, it speaks of a singular leader. No man takes this position to himself. But like Aaron, a singular priest over the entire priesthood, uh, he will be given that call by God. It's an unfortunate thing to see uh, people treating the ministry like a vocation. You know, they, they were thinking about going to culinary school they thought they might perhaps be a doctor. But, you know, the door opened up and they went to school for the ministry and now they've got a doctorate in divinity and they're out serving in a pulpit somewhere. That's the vocation that they've chosen. Well, look, you know, if that sort of thing happened and you can recognize it's the calling of God on your life and you recognize those circumstances as God's orchestrating them because he's called you to be in the ministry, that's one thing. But, I mean, if it was like the flip of a coin, like, well, I could have been a truck driver or I could have been a pastor. It's, it's not a vocation, and it should never be approached that way. You know, the Lord is calling you or he's not calling you. Uh, if, if you. If he's calling you to be a surgeon, then you go be a surgeon for Jesus Christ. If he's calling you to be a librarian, then you go... Be a librarian for Jesus Christ. If he's calling you to stock shelves, he's calling you to stock shelves for him. Whatever the Lord has called you to, then that's what you need to fulfill to the highest degree. Verse 6, now we see some of the qualifications begin. If a man is blameless, now, like, everybody should quit the ministry at that point, if, if, if we're thinking that, in this regard, <clears throat> it's the idea that the accusations should not stick, right? People are going to say things they always do. You're going to hear all kinds of junk uh, that are spread around communities about pastors and, and uh, their conduct and, you know, the things that people have to say about them. I, I'm not saying that in light of, you know, I have done things and I'm, I'm trying to sweep them under the carpet. You know, I know that maybe there are people out there that do that. What I am saying is I have heard a lot of gossip over the years about pastors. And I've heard gossip about myself. The issue is, does the gossip stick? 
You know, do the things that are said uh, have any merit to them? If they do, then the individual should not be a pastor. And that's all that Paul is saying. Then he says, the husband of one wife. <clears throat> In the day, that simply meant, so, so we'll talk about divorce and the discussions that go on in the church today. But in the day, that simply meant you couldn't have two or three wives at the same time, which was common. You know, very commonly within the culture, uh, a person would have a wife, and then he would have a concubine, and then he would have a mistress. And, you know, it, it was ridiculous, the, the sinful behavior of men. And Paul is saying, as Christians... No, we shouldn't have multiple wives, and especially as leaders in the church, pastors, we shouldn't have multiple wives. You know, for the discussion today, it's an unfortunate thing that it is falsely taught that if a man has been married and gotten divorced, then he's never going to be qualified to be a pastor after that. That's not what this passage is saying. It's not what the scripture implies. Uh, there are so many reasons why, you know, someone might have gotten divorced in the past. And, and, you know, when I say that, there's a whole bunch of people within Christianity that, you know, cry foul. Oh, you know, there's, there's only one reason, you know, sexual immorality. True, but maybe someone was married before they even knew the Lord. And they've gotten divorced. And now the call of the Lord is on their life. Maybe they've gotten, you know, before they knew the Lord, they got married five times and those marriages all fell apart and now they've gotten married and they've given their life to christ and the call of the lord to serve him is on their life and they're allowed to do that faithfully you really need to examine each person's circumstance if, if you can recognize that someone who's desiring to be a pastor <coughs> it, it has a flippant attitude in their heart about this idea of marrying one woman for the remainder of his life, then they should not be a pastor. It needs to be that this is a sacred institute that the Lord is calling you know, a pastor into, to live with one woman and to, to have children, as he says it here, if possible, uh, to be an example to the church. So if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of god not self-willed not quick-tempered not given to wine and we'll talk about uh, the given to wine issue for uh, a few minutes at least <clears throat> the family the children um children can be challenging children can be disobedient uh, but if they are known as disrespectful and rebellious children if, if that's how they are known oh that pastor and his disrespectful rebellious children that that doesn't work well i mean you know i have a hard time imagining any child going through their teenage years and not struggling with rebellion and insubordination there's gonna be a certain degree of that that goes on they're they're learning in their own life and in their own behavior and and there's a whole chemistry going on in their existence that's teaching them to be independent and and so while this independence is growing they're having to learn simultaneously 
how to be submissive to their parents. It's a very challenging period of time. The idea that is being presented is that if a pastor has just let his children run amok and home is a disaster and you get there and you can just tell the kids are flippant and you know totally rebellious and disregarding and that he doesn't care to do anything about it. He's just got an attitude like, well, you know, kids will be kids. If that's the case, then Paul is saying you're a terrible example to the church and shouldn't be leading in ministry. Even if there's some intense struggles and battles, doesn't mean that a pastor can't continue to be a pastor because uh, you know children do have their own mind and you're going to have to work through that process. Verse 7, again, must be blameless is the idea of the accusations do not stick. As a steward of God, a steward is one who was put in charge of a master's household. A steward is the one who took care of all of another man's belongings. If you know, if you're familiar with it, think of Joseph, uh, who you know was serving in Potiphar's house, and then later in charge of uh, the Pharaoh's house. You know that uh, basically, you know what the Pharaoh said is. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but the only thing that I'm going to be aware of is what I'm having for dinner. Just you take care of everything else, Joseph. And that's the idea of a pastor needs to be a steward of God. Whatever uh, circumstances the Lord might give or impart to that pastor, he would take care of. Why? Because he's not self-willed. He he doesn't have an attitude of selfishness. He, He isn't motivated by the things of himself. If, if you can recognize that, either one of those kings, that uh, here's a, a, a uh, pastor and uh, you know, he's selfish. The characteristic uh, becomes very obvious over time that this person is looking out for number one and selfishness is the root motivation of who they are. Or someone who that is not their motivation. Then you get a clear idea of uh, whether the call of the Lord is on their life. Because someone who's going to serve the body of Christ by example is not going to be selfish and self-willed. Not quick-tempered, doesn't fly off the handle. It might fly off the handle, but not easily. You can, you can push the buttons for a good long time before you get the reaction. You may get the reaction eventually, you know, because he's going to talk about how uh, you know he's he he's going to have to rebuke certain people sharply, so we we shouldn't get the idea that uh, pastors are always you know pushovers and, and don't have a backbone, uh, but they're not easily uh, thrown into anger and rage. And then that statement of not given to wine um, for anyone that serves in this ministry. I asked them beforehand, you know, are you a drinker? Do, do you like to drink? Do you want to drink? Because if you do, then for here, you're disqualified uh, from serving in this ministry. Uh, the people who serve here, especially because we work so much amongst those who struggle with addiction, can't be part of your life at all. Drinking, period, can't be part. Not drunkenness, drinking cannot be part of someone's life if they're going to serve 
here in this ministry. And there are several places throughout the scripture that we take and take that from. Particularly what's being said right here is the idea of they have no... Um, uh, it's, it's difficult. I guess the best way to word it is uh, it, it's the idea of sitting next to wine. As weird as that sounds. It, is that the, the pastor is not to be a person who who... It's weirded uh, in an odd way in the Greek language, but they, they don't have any uh, place that they occupy next to wine. Their, their life is sort of excommunicated from it, is the idea. Uh, I'll give you a handful of uh, supportive passages. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul writes to the young pastor, Timothy, and says to him, No longer drink only water. Now, before I go any further, that's a clear-cut indication that Timothy is only drinking water. He's, for spiritual reasons, made the decision to drink nothing but water. And it's a, um, a known fact between Paul and Timothy that Timothy is of the mindset of, I'm a teetotaler. I don't I don't I only drink water. I don't drink any alcohol at all. And Paul has to admonish him because he's gotten sick. You know, where he is and where he's ministering, uh, the water is impure, and so the bacteria that's growing in it has caused him to have a really bad upset stomach all of the time. The people in the community mixed their uh, water with wine, 50/50, so that uh, the alcohol content in the wine would kill the bacteria. So he has to tell Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Timothy is so serious about seeing, being sober that he will not drink wine at all. And Paul is saying, you know, as far as using it for medicine goes, it's really okay. You know, if you need to take medicine, I've, I've talked to people you know, like this, who who have the sense of, I am so spiritual, I never even take Tylenol. And I'm like, well, I'll take it all for you. You know, I just like, I mean, it's, Jesus said the sick need a physician. You know, there, there's a call for medicine. There's a call for these things in our lives. As far as drinking goes and the church leadership, there are many other things to look at. Proverbs 31 uh, verse 4 says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. Not, not to even drink it, let alone be drunk. It, not to even drink it, lest they drink and forget the law. We would say, forget the word of God, and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. We live in a sick and dying afflicted world that needs us as biblical leadership to not forget the things of God's word. We need to have clear mind and to deliver the word of God to them in such a way that it's helpful. Now, if you're thinking, well, you know, it's for kings, Will. I mean, why, why are you even telling me that? I'm not a king. I'm not a pastor. Neither one of these things apply to me. So I don't have to be concerned about it whatsoever. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 
say, uh, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are kings and priests. Right now, we are priests to the whole world to share the gospel and preach the word of God to them. When Jesus Christ comes in his authority and establishes his kingdom on earth, we will rule and reign with him. We, we are children of God. He is the king. We are princes and princesses. We will inherit positions of kingly authority. So again, not part of our spiritual state of existence. Give you a couple more. Galatians chapter 5. Verses 19 through 21, you should be familiar with. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident, right? They're obvious. They're plain to see. And you read down through the list there. If we consolidate it to our subject, the works of the flesh are evident, which are, verse 21, drunkenness, uh, which it continues by saying, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. As far as church leadership goes, this should not be part of our conduct at all. As far as believers go, I think we should avoid it altogether. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 from the New Living Translation says, Do not be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, the very thing that we might be looking for, the happiness, the joy, the lightheartedness that might be experienced from time to time in drinking. Uh, the Holy Spirit provides a pure sense of all of those things that doesn't destroy your life in the process. You know, we can experience God's fulfillment in that. Continuing, Titus chapter 1, verse 7, not violent. Always good to have a pastor that's not violent. You know, fun as it might be, at times, to you know, just I don't know, wreck somebody maybe. Um, not supposed to behave that way, you know. Pastors should not. I'm totally joking. Not part of my life. I just it seems weird that that has to be described uh, as look. If you're going to be a pastor, don't punch people. Um, but it does have to be described because there are some people who are given to violence, <coughs> and therefore should not be pastors. Their, their behavior is such that they shouldn't be doing that. Go be a police officer. You know, if you like a good fight every now and then, go serve the Lord by stopping criminals from doing the things they do. You know, don't go become a cop who likes to punch people, but, uh, you know, be someone who in your setting, your propensity toward these things is useful to the Lord, that that you would be able to serve the community, and serve the kingdom. Not greedy for money. So apparently this does apply to pastors, but it doesn't apply to televangelists. So, you know, that's good for them. Um, you know, as you're reading through the qualifications here, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, not greedy for money, no pastor should function this way. I just having a conversation uh, with a gal from the church. Uh, I had touched on this briefly and she said, well, how is it that all of these televangelists from the health, wealth, and prosperity movement look at Jesus and they don't recognize the poverty 
of his existence and and Jesus saying that this should not be, you know, the, 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 the strong, impulsive, compulsive desire for money should not be part of their lives. How is it they don't recognize that? And I explained to her that they actually have the mindset in the health, wealth, and prosperity movement that Jesus was incredibly wealthy. They teach that. They, they take all kinds of examples uh, and twist them to make them sound like Jesus was wealthy. In particular, uh, one of the favorites is when Jesus said, <clears throat> you know, birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, but the son of man uh, does not know where he's going to lay his head tonight. And they say, see, birds have many nests, and foxes have many holes and many dens. And, and so Jesus had many homes, and he just didn't know which one he was going to stay in that night. It's a total perversion of the scripture. Jesus is saying, I'm homeless, like the animals. <laughs> We're on a continuous camping trip here. If, if you want to be part of this ministry, you're going to be part of wandering. We rarely touch down in Capernaum and spend the night or a few days there at home base. The rest of the time is traveling and camping and ministering as we move along. Those that serve the Lord should not be given to this intense desire for money. And in contrast, verse 8, instead, they should be hospitable. And, and listen, <clears throat> this is more than just the idea of liking to have people over for dinner. In this day, hospitality was to be a hotel owner. Okay? There were no Motel 6, you know, Comfort Inn, nothing. When you traveled, you were reliant upon the hospitality of strangers. You would come into a town, and you'd try to find an open square, and you maybe get a little fire going and, you know, get a snack out for the kids, and someone would see you and say, are you traveling? Yes. Do you not have any place to stay? No, come home with me. And so the idea is that for church leadership, they should have the sense of having an open home, of desiring to take people in, of desiring to be hospitable to people. Not to the point where, you know, we have these moochers that take advantage of the church and try to get, you know, free lunch all the time. But the idea that when people are in need, a pastor would be, you know, given to helping them. A lover of what is good, <clears throat> not just generally. This has a, a personification to it. it. It would probably be better translated as to say a lover of those that are good. The idea of men and women. So couple it together with being hospitable and being a lover of good men and women that they, they enjoy that when they get to be around people and find the goodness in people and uh, be able to take care of them. Sober-minded. So again, we're just on this track of uh, the, the leader's uh, qualifications. <clears throat> Sober-minded, the idea of they're serious, not stoic, right? They might know how to tell good jokes and laugh and even be lighthearted, but they're serious about their faith, they're serious about their ministry, they're committed to the things that they do and that they're involved in. Just, meaning balanced, that, that they, they, they don't treat one person 
really good and turn right around and for seemingly no reason treat someone else very bad. They have a very balanced behavior in the things they do. Holy. Uh, don't think of that as being self-righteous or full of themselves. It's the idea that they have a singular purpose for existence. Their whole existence is serving God. So, so they, have, they have this sense of being set apart uh, for the work and the will of God. Self-controlled. Uh, this concept's come up uh, you know, a few times as we, we've uh, had this discussion. <clears throat> they, they don't fly off the handle. They don't spend all their money. They don't uh, leave things in neglect and not take care of what needs to be taken care of. They are self-controlled in their conduct. You look at them and you think, no, there's a person who at least to some degree has a fair degree of self-motivation and self-discipline. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Uh, the idea uh, that his doctrine doesn't change. You know, you, you go to his church uh, one time and he's preaching, you know, solid and according to the word of God, and you go to his church the next time and, oh, he's changed his position and now he's gotten a little weird and, you know, following after some new strange things. And then still later, even more changes occur. The, the foundational position is the idea of grounded in the word of God according to the things that he's been taught. And interesting, the way Paul is saying that is the things like the idea of the things we've taught them. You know, the apostles, uh, you know, that had followed Jesus and Paul himself and those who have come and delivered the actual teachings of Jesus Christ, that's what they need to be holding to. That he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and that would be explain, exhortation, uh, and convict those who contradict. Um, while this clearly is the idea of conversation and preaching, there's a, a <clears throat> at least an equal part to the language that is saying that by his conduct, he will be able to convict and exhort those who might contradict him. You know, they come and they've got, you know, sort of accusations about his behavior or his belief system. And he can, you know, he doesn't even have to say anything. He can just sort of point at his life and say, that's not how I live. That's, that's, that's contradictory to who I am. So, you know, yes, through his speech, his, his you know, faithful delivery of God's word, uh, he would be able to exhort and convict those who contradict, but a, a coupling portion of that is also his behavior. Verse 10, for there are many insubordinate, uh, the, the rebellious within the church who come and have all kinds of things to say. You know, it, It's always interesting to me uh, when people don't recognize this about themselves. They come to a church, and, you know, almost immediately they, they come and their attitude or maybe even their outright statement is, well, you say this, but what about that? They're demonstrating right in the beginning that they, they don't have a submissive attitude. Their mindset is that they're here to correct. 
my teaching, the church leadership, the way we do things around here. Look, you know, if you show up someplace and think they're doing this all wrong, it's time to go someplace else. It's not time to stay there and make waves. It's it's time for you to realize, oh, God hasn't called me here because I'm not lined up with any of what's going on here. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea of insubordination, both idle talkers and deceivers. <clears throat> the term deceiver there, I put in parenthesis after it, of the mind slash ideas. So, you know, this idea of being insubordinate, you know, pastor finishes his sermon in over, you know, that afternoon, later that day, throughout the rest of the week, conversations come up and this person will be like, yeah, well, he says this, but I more think that. They're perverting the things that are being taught. So you've got Timothy, excuse me, Titus, who is supposed to establish pastors who are going to teach sound doctrine, and when people come in that contradict and try to subvert the things that they are teaching, then they need to be dismissed and sent on their way. So this same mindset he continues, the insubordinate idol talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So this is the whole conflict that Titus, I keep saying Timothy, Titus, you know, was part of when Paul went to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council over are they going to require the Gentiles to become religiously Jewish in order to become Christians. And here, those circumcisers have come from Jerusalem, the Judaizers, who are polluting the doctrine of grace that is being taught by Paul and uh, Titus and and the elders that Titus is going to appoint. Watch out for those guys. Avoid them. Get rid of them. Don't let them be around. They're going to be in your community? Fine. Don't let them be in your gatherings. Make a distinction. Show that there's a clear separation between us and them. Very, very necessary. Today, that would be the legalism that creeps in. And that that's very wide, right? You know, oh, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to wear these clothes. If you're going to be a Christian, you can't ever wear these clothes. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to have your hair cut this way, or you can never have it cut that way, or you can never go to this location, or you always need to go. Legalism, as though by our conduct, we're somehow going to make ourselves acceptable to God. Notice what he says in verse 11 whose mouths must be stopped. This is literally the idea of clamped shut. (laughs) Think about that. He's telling Titus, your role in interacting with them needs to be so strong that it would be the idea that they're running their mouth and all of a sudden, (laughs) you know, he's clamped their mouth shut. He's, he's seized hold. He's not telling him to physically do anything like that, but he's saying your actions must be aggressive enough that it's like muzzling them. You're not going to let them say these things in order to lead people astray. Their mouths must be stopped. Who subvert whole households, teaching things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. And that gain isn't 
entirely money. It's the idea of winning people over to themselves, gaining a name for themselves. It's the selfish ambition that he's speaking about earlier. These, uh, you know, that come in and subvert uh, what's going on here. Now he says uh, in 12, Paul quotes uh, the Cretan philosopher uh, Epimetus uh, 600 years before Christ. Uh, some referred to him as a prophet or a seer. Uh, he says one of them, he's quoting uh, Epimetus, uh, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. It's not that he's saying this is how uh, Cretans are. He's saying it's true that Cretans' behavior is corrupt enough in general that you know those who were considered prophets and seers and leaders amongst them made this assessment of them so you know welcome to your community titus these are the people you're going to have to be dealing with it is a bunch of very difficult people island of misfit toys you know i just crete island south of greece is where now titus finds himself uh, 13 continues, therefore, rebuke them sharply. And there it is, right? The, the, re, rebuke is open verbal statement of harsh direction. You, you're going to blast them, is what he's saying. And even sharply. This, this means at some point you might have heard Titus actually yelling. Here's a pastor who's yelling at somebody. And uh, people act like, oh, no, pastors don't ever yell. Oh, at times it's necessary. Um, I I've yelled at many Jehovah's Witnesses and, you know, a handful of Mormons. Mormons usually leave when you tell them to. Jehovah's Witnesses will sometimes stand on your property and fight back and talk back and tell you off. You know. People go, well, aren't you supposed to minister to them? Not according to what John said. He said, if anyone comes to you teaching any other doctrine than what we've delivered to you, do not greet them or welcome them into your home lest you share in their condemnation. I don't want anything to do with their condemnation. Their condemnation is to be cast into the lake of fire with Satan into outer darkness for all of eternity. The world needs to see that I am diametrically opposed to those false teachers. You know, in the park, in open, get an opportunity to share with a Mormon and preach Jesus Christ to them. Great. You show up at my house, you can just leave. Get off my doorstep, get off my lawn, go away. You are not welcome here. I'm in this community preaching Jesus Christ trying to win souls to the Lord. You're here subverting that effort. You're working for my enemy, trying to take people down, whether you know it or not, right? And that's what a lot of Christians will, you know, throw back in my face. Well, they don't know what they're doing. Doesn't really matter, does it? If the end result is hell, then I'm going to be very aggressive about that. Rebuke them sharply, the troublemakers, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. 
to the pure, all things are pure. And I, this is a great place uh, to close this out. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. The term pure, interestingly enough, is catheterize. Now, I don't know if any of us have had the unfortunate experience of being catheterized, but it's the idea of having a procedure done that drains the poison from your body. That's, that's literally what the term means. You know, your bladder is going to kill you with the toxins that are in it, and it needs to be drained out. We as believers have been catheterized by Christ. His work on the cross has lanced open the wound, the infection within us, and drained that out. It's no longer in us. This is actually... Uh, used in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And, and the, the statement is to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the idea of draining the unrighteousness out of us. When we've been purified, these filthy things are not, no longer part of our lives. They've been catheterized out and removed. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So we'll pick up at chapter 2 next week as he continues in that discussion. But, you know, pretty clear idea of, you know, what the qualifications are, what a pastor should be doing, and what he's encouraging in his congregation, in his community, and what he's discouraging in both of those settings also. This, this is the responsibility of a pastor, wherever the Lord might send it. So let's pray, and next week we'll pick up at chapter 2.